Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with USC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I am back home from my travels. I had a couple of trips. I think I mentioned the Copenhagen one, at least, uh, on the previous episode. And I had some time to focus on certain things in my life, um, probably because of the travels. And, and one thing that I've changed for myself in the past couple of weeks is that I am trying out intermittent fasting. So nothing drastic, nothing like fasting for 36 hours and then hitting the gym and nothing is moving anymore, but more of limiting the the time window during the day when I'm actually eating. And it's only been a week or two for now, sort of testing the waters here, but I'm I'm sort of liking it. So I'm I'm aiming for a 10-14 or 14-10 meaning that for 14 hours of the day, I try not to eat anything. And during that 10 hour window, I'll do my breakfast, lunch, snacks, dinner, possible supper as well. And uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to reach from this, but at least I don't go near the fridge after seven in the evening. And that's probably the key for me here. I think this is an effect of you trying broccoli and you're like, not nah, just gonna stop eating. And then I don't have to try broccoli anymore. So I think there's a hidden message here. Um, for me, I survived skiing. So we took the family on a ski trip. Um, been talking about that in a couple of episodes that we were looking forward to that. We got back just now over the weekend or last week, and that was a blast. I am now a proud skier, and I can go with parallel skis and do carved turns and make my way down most of the slopes. So all the green, blue, and red ones, that's how they label them here. Um, I never did try the black one because uh, that's a bit too steep, uh, too steep for me after like three days of skiing in my life. Uh, so we'll definitely go again next year, and by then I'm gonna try to advance into tackling the black slope as well. It was really fun. Family loved it. Kids were really sad when we had to leave that beautiful place that we stayed at, and everyone came home being really relaxed and energized. And it's all we talk about now every day. We want to go back skiing. So, 10 out of 10 would recommend a ski trip. That sounds awesome. I was a bit worried that if if you don't make it back home or 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 you 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 get hurt, that this podcast would then be known as Control Alt Azure without Toby, because then we would have to wait for you to heal. But thankfully, you're here. Uh, today's episode, we are talking about security operations or SecOps in Azure. So a little bit sort of wider and higher level topic, if you will. And uh, when we're talking about this, I've heard people mention SecOps and DevSecOps. Well, everybody knows what DevOps is, but SecOps and DevSecOps, what what is it? Are they the same thing? Is SecOps sort of the new kid in the block and nobody's talking about DevSecOps anymore? And, and why should I care? That's also a great question. Um, so SecOps is security operations. Like plain and simple, we're going to talk about that in this episode. DevOps uh, or DevSecOps is an evolution of both DevOps and SecOps combined, where you bring you you kind of shift left the responsibilities. You bring more security responsibility through the entire team and the entire lifecycle of whatever you are building and protecting. So, if you introduce security responsibilities to the developers all the way through the CI/CD pipelines, all the way through deploying into production, all the way through the infrastructure, having the right tools, and then eventually into your IT teams and the SecOps teams or the, the secured operating teams. 
if everyone is part of the security strategy, you're going to be all the better for it. So there's an intersection with all of those. And maybe that's actually a really good topic for an episode where we talk about DevOps, DevSecOps, and SecOps. What are they? How do they, you know, how do we define them? Do you need all of them? Do you need only the one that covers all of them? Do you need, is there one of them you don't need? But I think that's for, for another episode. Um, today, specifically for SecOps, uh, let's break that down a little bit. So we heard that term quite a bit. Not everyone is familiar with what it is and how it can really apply to your teams working, for example, in the Azure cloud estate. And uh, what we're going to talk about is applicable to any cloud uh, or, or any kind of, if you're working on AWS or Google cloud or Azure, it doesn't really matter. We're going to talk about which products can help you with this in Azure, of course, uh, at the end of this episode as well. Uh, but just breaking down SecOps, really high level, um, and try to squeeze that into this one single episode for a holistic picture. It's it's kind of hard, um, you know, not going too deep into details, but but let's try that. So, the definition of SecOps is pretty pretty much that the main objective of a cloud security operations or like SecOps team that is to detect, respond, and recover from active attacks on your organization or enterprise assets. So whatever you have in your cloud, whenever that is under attack, when you need to respond to it and recover it and, and detect those things, that's what the SecOps team does. That is a, a very high level definition. Now, there's a lot of nuances to that as well, but high level, um, that's what it is. And a SecOps team should really mature into being able to reactively respond to attacks. That is when you use tools that says, okay, we just found something there's an anomaly happening here, or there's someone inside of your network, or we're seeing malicious requests inside of the Vena, you know, whatever it is. That's when you are being reactive. Something happened, let's take action. Your SecOps team should also mature into being able to be proactive. So you should proactively hunt for attacks that may have slipped past reactive detections. And thinking about proactive um, uh, responses here or proactive, being proactive, uh, remember, we used to talk about zero trust and the principles and assume breach and assume that someone is already on the inside. All of that aligns kind of with the zero trust principles and the zero trust framework. And that's how you need to think about this as well. So one is, hey, we got a signal, something happened, let's react to that. The other one is, we're going to assume that we're already under attack. We have no signals on it. We have to go hunting. We have to pro be proactive and figure out if we are under attack, if there's someone trying to exfiltrate data or something like that. So that's kind of high level how I would define SecOps. Um, there are a lot of nuances to that. And depending on if you're a startup or an enterprise or like a conglomerate worldwide, you know, it's going to look slightly different. But that to me is the high level definition. I, I like the definition. And maybe a couple of years ago, if I would get a phone call from somebody asking about something related to SecOps or security operations, in general, the sort of ask would often be that, can you configure Microsoft Sentinel for us and, and have it do a lot of alerts and then somebody will pick them up and somebody will fix the problems. And, and we did in, engage in a couple of projects where we did configure and set up and deploy a, a nicely tuned Sentinel instance for a customer. And then we sort of left because we didn't offer any SecOps services on top of that, we simply deployed the tool. And then later somebody would call us and ask, well, okay, we are getting an, an alert on whatever, Azure DevOps token access thingy. 
So can you pick this up? And we're like, no, no, we deployed it for you. So you need to have that operations part. <laughs> so I feel it's too easy to sort of focus on the sec part of SecOps. And I feel the ops part is perhaps even more crucial here because you need to do the operations and that is often challenging. So SecOps is about establishing good, great cloud security operations team. So you need need the knowledge, you need the, the people, but then you also need the processes and then you need the operations to sort of tie them together. Uh, any top of mind key points for for building a good security operations strategy? And when I'm asking this, I'm also realizing now that SecOps definitely isn't about deploying Sentinel or Defender for Cloud and calling it a day. This is more about strategy and operations and planning and preparing and maybe a little bit less about the actual tools that you will need. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. It's people process, right? Uh, making sure that you have the right people, the right teams, the right functions, that you can support the processes required. Like we talked about just now, like you need to detect things, but you also need to proactively go hunting. All these things, it's not about the technology used. It's about how you define your processes and the people working within the teams. So first of all, understanding zero trust is important. We talked about that a lot in the show as well. We're probably going to keep talking about that uh, to great lengths. So think trust by default, which is moving toward trust only by exception or zero trust, don't trust anything. Um, that requires kind of a, a reliable way to establish trust, um, you know, where and when trust is needed. That's kind of one, one thing you always have to keep in mind with uh, a security operations team and, and SecOps, because that is also, you know, in clear alignment with uh, zero trust. So because we can't assume that any request is trustworthy, um, we also need to kind of attest the trustworthiness of all the requests point in time when they happen. Because in the past, we didn't have to do these things. It was more like we should have done them, but we didn't. You know, in the past, it was more a request came from server A. That has to be secure because we have a firewall, right? That's it. Simple. Uh, or a VPN or whatever is required. And that is now moved into a request from server A just come in. Let's verify that explicitly. Always explicitly verify. Again, back to the zero trust principles. Uh, so investing in these kind of changes in how you operate is part of a SecOps mindset. So it, um, you know, embracing that thinking, and again, SecOps, zero trust, these kind of align. SecOps being a way to kind of implement a lot of these principles uh, into practice. Um, the mindset is is important because it will help you increase visibility on the data you have, all the signals you get, and that will help you make better kind of trust decisions. Do I trust this request? Do I not trust the, uh, the request coming in? So ultimately, just embrace zero trust in areas like identity, endpoints, infrastructure, network, and so on. We've talked about those in the past. That also increases the number of incidents a SecOps team need to be able to analyze and mitigate. So alert fatigue is a problem that can also quickly arise from that. I think we've talked about alert fatigue in a couple of episodes when we talked about monitoring and, and uh, also when we talked about threat hunting and, and Sentinel and things like that. So a SecOps team or your SOC, your security operating center, where your SecOps team might be a part of, should be able to paint the picture of your strategy for the following key points, just to kind of more clearly answer the question um, of you know key points for building a good security operations strategy. 
the SecOps team or your SOC, the Security Operating Center, need to be able to protect, that is prevent and block threats. That is, you know, set up the perimeter, making sure that nothing gets in, making sure you secure your workloads and your infrastructure and all that. Uh, detection, it's about identifying suspicious behavior that is happening inside the network, coming from the outside and, you know, even in between different services, all that stuff. Investigation, all right, something happened. Now we need to narrate the full attack story so we can see where did it begin? Where is it now? Is it still moving? Is there any lateral movement? What's happening? Um, then you have remediation. A good thing to think about is automatically remediate uh, compromised assets and have a quick way to take action. So if you know that, okay, we have a threat, how do you remediate that? That is something your SecOps team need to train on doing. You need to really practice these things and you need to just say, okay, let's practice a high alert. We're getting a, a data breach or we're getting this or that type of event. How do you handle that? That is not something that any tool can just give you automatically. That's something that you ask the people working in the SOC or this, the SecOps teams. That's something that you have to be aware of in terms of a process. Because uh, picking up the manual at that point in time, when you say that your entire company is now being locked down by ransomware and you have about four minutes to figure out how to stop that, how do you do that? Um, so these things are some things that you need to keep in mind and just you know make sure that you have an established process for it. Um, there's also threat analytics, and that's really about staying up to date and informed with stuff like threat intelligence. I think we talked about Defender 4 threat intelligence in one episode as well. We can get all the kind of signals from threat actors and what's going on in the wild. Uh, vulnerabilities you need to stay on top of and discover vulnerable kind of assets and misconfigurations. We talked about those in an episode not too long ago. We also talked about OWASP top 10, uh, you know, how application developers might introduce kind of vulnerabilities. The same happens on the report we talked about from Microsoft, the cybersecurity landscape report or whatever that was called, where we talked about misconfigurations um, on the infrastructure. Same thing there. If you don't configure things the right way, it might be vulnerable. Or if you don't patch your servers, it might be open to specific vulnerabilities. And if they are, you can also assume that there's someone who's going to find it. And then finally, of course, threat experts. If you don't have in-house knowledge on all these things, make sure you understand how to get help from world-class experts. And there are people available at like Microsoft, AWS, Google, whatever cloud provider you're using, but also the world is full of really, really good companies to help you with this. So don't take security as an afterthought. Make sure you put it fore and front and center. Make sure you have a good SecOps team and that you can support your soccer security operating center. I know that was a lot, but a long answer to a short question, but I think those are kind of the key things to focus on to building a good security operations strategy. So protection, detection, investigation, remediation, hunting, threat analytics and insights, vulnerabilities, and then finding the right people. I, I like this. And when you said back in the day, something, perhaps an authentication request came from server A, it has to be secure. That was it in the 1990s. And often you would have a single or a couple of IT admins working for a relatively large company, and they would know everything about everything that needed to be known within that environment. And now just thinking about these responsibilities and tasks, so obviously protection and detection, that's something you're doing continuously. But I've always felt that with hunting, it's a special skill set. You cannot just yank your 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 service desk person and say, well, you have two hours of unscheduled 
time today. So let's have you hunt for possible uh, hidden threats and, and being proactive in that sense. It just doesn't work like that. You actually need dedicated people or at least people who have enough skills and experience and enough time to actually focus on something like hunting, which is just one part of all of these that you mentioned. So quite a bit of stuff here, um, but let's keep this high level enough for today. So there's quite a bit of venues to the threats and, and defenses as, as you listed, but what would be the common focus areas for, dev, for, for not, not DevOps teams, but SecOps teams? Is it, is it so that you have a team of five, everybody's great at everything, or would you some, somehow sort of split the responsibility and have a strategy that perhaps a few people are looking for incidents, a few are looking at threats and so on? Any sort of high-level view on this one? Yeah, I remember working with uh, with customers. I remember working with, with some of these things in, in my previous roles as well. And there's really two things here. One is you can out, uh, you can focus on the outcomes and the outcomes uh, of a SecOps team traditionally or typically uh, focuses around incident management, preparing for in incidents and threat intelligence, where incident management is about like overseeing and addressing ongoing security breaches uh, within your environment. And there you have the things we talked about, like being reactive, so reactively responding to attacks that have been identified. So you've got a signal saying, okay, someone broke in, now go figure that out. The other one is being proactive. So again, coming back to proactively hunting and searching for breaches that kind of bypass the conventional security de detection methods. Again, assume breach, assume someone is already on the inside, that's why you go hunting. But also coordination. So with incident management, coordination is super important. So you can coordinate and orchestrate the response across various departments. And that includes like legal and public relations and other kind of relevant business functions. Because uh, when a security breach happens, you need to know how to communicate both internally and externally. That should be part of your incident management. So that's kind of the first outcome. The second outcome being preparing for incidents. Um, this really involves equipping your organization to effectively respond to potential future security breaches. Uh, so just being prepared. Um, that also means that you should have a comprehensive strategic approach focusing on developing a proactive mindset. So again, coming back to Assume breach, you need to be proactive, trying to figure things out, find things, um, and, and also bring familiarity with security protocols across your organizations, not just for one team. Um, when you have those kind of preparations, that also uh, kind of ensures that when any significant security incidents um, do occur, the team is in better kind of position to manage them effi uh, efficient, efficiently. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind. Coming back again to people in process, make sure you practice these things. So even if you haven't had a huge security incident yet, assume you will get one. And when it comes, have you practiced? Do you know the routine? Have you done a red team, blue team kind of exercise as well? These things are important. And then like a final outcome is usually TI or threat intelligence, uh, which is kind of the process involving collection, analysis, and distribution of information regarding security threats to kind of the key stakeholders within your organization. That could also be uh, operations and security teams or your SecOps teams, uh, as well as upper management, stuff like that. Um, but those are kind of the expected outcomes. And to support those outcomes, to answer the question more clearly, like what kind of teams do you have? Is a SecOps team just one team doing it all? It's not. 
Um, but like for a startup, it might be one or two people. But for an enterprise, it might be entire divisions or teams. So there's usually three tiers where the first tier is the initial response. And that's kind of the tier that serves at the front line in addressing security alerts. So the main function there is to just handle a large volume of notifications coming in that you need to investigate. They're primarily primarily kind of generated through the automated systems and tools that you have. So if you have Sentinel and Defender for Cloud and whatever you have, uh, these things are going to generate signals. And this team will then uh, do the incident response, kind of tier one uh, level handling of that. Um, but then incidents that are either too complex or previously kind of unknown, they're then being forwarded to the next tier. And the next tier then, tier two, would be investigation or detailed examination of the threats coming in or the signals coming in. And the tier two is kind of dedicated to dealing with incidents that necessitate a, a kind of deeper investigation. Often that involves the kind of integration of information from various sources to kind of map it to what's going on. And the goal is here, of course, to develop solutions that can then be standardized for issues that are escalated from tier one. So whenever this happens again in tier one, you should have a package or an automation or a playbook or something that can handle that situation better. So that should be part of your strategy for the tier two or the kind of investigation team saying, okay, tier one found something they have no idea how to handle. They're moving it on to tier two. Now it's the tier two uh, team's job to figure out how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Or if it does come in as a signal again, how can we automate remediation? How can we figure this out? Because it might happen at scale at some point. And then kind of coming back to what we talked about, you mentioned that it requires a specific skill for hunting. That's typically what we see as the tier three. Um, that's the, the hunters. That's the highest level of incident response that focuses on really actively searching for advanced and sophisticated cyber threats. Uh, so that team is usually tasked with things like creating guidelines for the broader security teams to enhance your kind of security posture and your security measures based on what they find when they do their hunting. Also, the tier three kind of serves as the ultimate escalation point for when you get significant incidents. Uh, you've got the experts and the forensic teams and the forensic analysis team and, and like the strategic response plans uh, to how to mitigate and recover from major breaches. That usually comes from the tier three team as well. It doesn't have to look that way. That is a typical way we see how things commonly look in, in some of the enterprises around the world doesn't necessitate that that's how it works for your organization or, or for any of your customers and of your partners. But that is a typical way to paint the picture and should talk at least a little bit about what do we expect in a SecOps team, what are the roles included, and kind of how do we split the, the responsibilities within one of those teams. Really good stuff. I remember when we talked about Ignite 2023 announcements, maybe a month or two back, uh, the new MCRA, the Microsoft Cybersecurity Reference Architecture, was just announced. And as part of that, we had, was it called SAF Security Adoption Framework? Do you recall? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, it was, it was SAF. So, so SAF and MCRA, they sort of both drill down into these, these different tiers and how to essentially establish this sort of operations. So if you're interested in, in seeing this visually as well, we'll put the link in the show notes. So I often hear and I know companies and customers talking about SOC, Security Operations Center. 
I feel it's often a term that it's relatively easy to throw around like, hey, do you have a 24-7 sock or do you have this or do you have that? But it's often very undefined what is implied with sock. A, a bit like when IoT was all the rage in 2014 to 2016 or so, people would say IoT, but it was very unclear. What do you mean by IoT? Do you mean a singular <laughs> sensor embedded in a building? and some sort of endpoint that's collecting data once per minute. Is that IoT now? Or would that entail perhaps something more advanced, something more complex? So, so for SOC and what I often witness with security operations centers, often the, the expectation and ask is somebody available 24-7 at all hours of the day, any given day of the year, looking after any possible security threats and then reacting if something seems to be happening or something was detected. But any insights into what would be the functions within a SOC? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good question. We we spent some time talking with you know various folks about that in the past as well, because similar to to what you hear from your customers, like, hey, we have a SOC or we need a SOC. What is that? What does it mean? Does that mean you have a SecOps team, and they are now the entire SOC, or like what is a cloud uh, security operations center? So it kind of differs. Again, the variables of your uh, organization and enterprise or startup will dictate how this looks. It's not unusual, though, to see uh, a couple of different functions being part of your security operations center. They might be passive, like stakeholders, just being there for awareness. They might be very active, like the SecOps and the IT uh, security team and the IT uh, operations team. So the the typical teams that we see being part of a security operations and just to kind of paint the picture that it's not just for the security analysis or the security pro, uh, you have IT operations, uh, which should have kind of close regular contact with this team because if there's an incident ongoing, they need to be aware so they can shut things down or redeploy or you know mitigate from the infrastructure side. You have a threat intelligence team. If you have that team or individuals with that function, they should be part of that. Same with security architecture, people building uh, security solutions or who are cloud architects with a focus on security, they should also be part and aware of everything going on here. Um, if you have an insider risk program, and again, this is probably for the enterprises. If you have an insider risk program, which a lot of companies do uh, to to dictate uh, like terms and 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 figure out if there's any insider risk uh, potentially happening within the enterprise, they should definitely be part of this. Um, you have legal and human resources should also be part of this. So again, whenever something happens, if it happens because of an insider risk, you need to have both legal and, and HR available uh, within that team for easy access. Um, communications team, again, something happens, you need some good PR on the outside and internally. So imagine you had a data breach or you had a lockdown, you had something happen and you need to communicate that to your partners, to your customers, to the world internally. That's where your communications team come in, whatever that look like. Um, risk organization, if you have one, uh, again, in enterprises, you have the, the, it's very typical to have a risk organization or an organization kind of calculating risks for your entire company, your entire organization, the enterprise. Um, they should also be aware of this. So it's on their radar when something does happen or when there are kind of arised levels of risk associated to any kind of security incident or whatever's going on, they should also be aware of that. Um, so I think that's kind of the 
the list, high level. But then again, if you're a startup, it might be that one person wears the hat of five of these things, right? So again, it depends on your company and your situation. But just to open the eyes that it's not just security folks. You should have a lot of different functions involved in your security operating center to, to really make sure you have all the right functions very readily available whenever the incident happens. You can speak to HR, to legal, to the communications team, insider risk management, all these things, if you have a detected an insider risk, whatever it might be. Um, so I think that's top of mind. Yeah, that's definitely a lot of people. And perhaps for non-enterprises, what I'm often seeing is that these might not be dedicated people. You might not have five people doing IT operations just for SOC. You might have five people doing IT ops in general, and two or three of them have a secondary role for SOC or a primary role for SOC, for example. Yeah, like a seat at the table in the in the SOC. Yeah. Like for awareness, you can reach them if you need to, but they don't spend their daily their daily work is not about the security operation stuff, but they have a seat at the table. Whenever something does come in, it's on the radar. Exactly. And and the same is quite fitting for threat intelligence. Uh, you might not have a dedicated person doing threat intelligence and hunting constantly, but you have a bunch of people who sort of follow on that, what's happening around the world and follow up on the security bulletins and messages coming from vendors and then shifting to that role more closely when the time time demands for that. Um, okay, so we've talked about on a very high level on understanding SecOps and, and also SOC Security Operations Center. But would it be nice to sort of wrap up the episode with, with something tangible, something solid like tools and services and capabilities? Uh, so what comes to mind in terms of key tools to enable or embrace to start building or continue building something for SecOps? And if you if you allow, let me let me start with something easy that I already mentioned, and then let's figure out if we can find something else. So Microsoft Sentinel, that that's probably the low hanging fruit in the sense that it is a centralized cloud based service for collecting, detecting, investigating, and also responding to threats. And on on paper, I feel it's relatively simple to set up. You need log analytics workspace. You ingest all the logs in there. Sentinel on top of that, and that's it. But then the further and uh, more you continue using Sentinel and the more demands you have from your organization and from your SOC, the more you sort of dive deeper into what Sentinel can offer you. Uh, anything else besides Sentinel that comes to mind? Yeah, I, th I think Sentinel is definitely also the the first thing that comes to mind because you get all the kind of detection and and responses and and hunting and all that stuff in there. Um, all the Defender, you know, Defender, all the things. There is Defender XDR, which is formerly known as 365 Defender. There's Defender for Cloud. There's Defender for IT. There's Defender Threat Intelligence. There's Defender capabilities in Windows. So there's a bunch of stuff. All of these things are things you need. And Defender for Cloud. Uh, has things like Defender for Cloud, Defender for Servers, for Storage, for SQL, for Containers, for App Services, for Key Vault, for DNS, for Resource Manager, for Open Source Relational Databases. There's a bunch of things. And the good thing about this is you can go to your Azure subscriptions or your management group and whatever, and you can say, hey, Defender, enable all these things. 
right? You're going to have to pay for it, obviously. You can enable them. Um, so that's pretty good. Um, Microsoft Defender XDR, or, or Microsoft 365 Defender, as it was called in the past. And that also brings you now the, the XDR interface, but also Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, for Office 365, for Identity, for Cloud Apps, for um, XDR for Businesses, and Microsoft Defender Vulnerability Management. We talked about some of those in previous episodes as well. But just to paint the landscape a little bit, like it's not you get Defender for Cloud and then you have everything. No, Defender for Cloud is broken down into a bunch of different things. Uh, Defender XDR, or again, formerly 365 Defender, also broken down into a bunch of services and a bunch of capabilities. The more of those you enable, the better kind of data and insights uh, are going to be available to you. So you can make the kind of the right action and take the right action when you investigate and you do threat hunting. Uh, so all the Defender things, um, I think, are important. Defender for cloud specifically, you should have as many things enabled as possible. Again, keep Keep a mind open for, like, if you enable all the things here, I did for Defender for Storage, and I made billions of requests a month to storage accounts. The bill for that was higher than anything else in my subscription at that point. So that is something to be aware of, that if you do enable it and you do, like, multi-billion transactions to, to specific storage accounts, you might want to disable it maybe for those storage accounts, depending on, you know, the sensitivity of those storage accounts, of course. Um Defender for IoT, you have the de Defender for IoT for end-user organizations or for device builders, the one building the devices. Um, but something that often are kind of not discussed is Microsoft Defender antivirus that you have on Windows. You have Defender capabilities on Windows. You have Windows Defender Firewall, Windows Defender Application Control, Windows Defender Application Guard, and Windows Defender Smart Screen. There's a bunch of defenders for Windows as well. So again, if you have Intune, if you roll things out that way and, and you, you kind of force enable these things, that's great. The more signals you can collect, the better off you're going to be when, whenever you need to do threat hunting, when you, whenever you need to kind of uh, do the investigation and see, well, is there lateral movement? Where did it start? How did it move? The more logs and the more insights and data points you have, the easier that's, that's going to be. Uh, so I think top of mind, what you mentioned, Sentinel, the other thing, all the defenders, like in, in the various kind of SKUs and, and tiers and capabilities that that comes in. Um, knowing, of course, that if you enable all of these things, that's going to cost you. So be aware what you enable, what you need, how you need it, um, and depending on your organizational size and the amount of resources and the amount of transactions you make with those resources will also play um, into the kind of cost management aspect of enabling these things. I, I really like this, and. Perhaps one sort of insight that I've learned over the past couple of years is that the Defender services and capabilities, they are not equal in the sense that, for example, if you enable uh, within Defender for Cloud, if you enable Defender for Key Vault, that is a switch you turn on for all Key Vaults. And you might have three or five or 10 Key Vaults. That's it. It, it literally took you 25 seconds 24 seconds to navigate to that that part of Azure portal and one second to enable that capability. You're, you're done. But then you move on to something like Defender for Identity or Defender for Endpoint, especially for Endpoint. You just cannot switch that on because depending on the endpoints, you might have Windows, laptops, you might have iOS devices, meaning iPhones and, and iPads. Android devices, uh, phones that need to be managed, 
possible servers and other workstations, different limitations you want to introduce in there. So typically for Defender for Endpoint, I see those projects taking months and testing with pilot groups and pilot devices to sort of figure out the correct configuration that everything works, but it's as locked down as possible. So on paper, you have Defender for Key Vault, Defender for Endpoint, sort of equal, but vastly different services in that sense. So from this Sentinel, everything in Defender for Cloud, most if not all in Defender XDR, including Defender for Endpoint and Identity and so on. Those are probably the key areas to focus on. And something like Defender for IoT, if you don't do any IoT, you probably don't need Defender for IoT, so you can skip that. Alrighty, a lot of stuff, a lot of insights here. The last bit we have before closing up is the unexpected question. Uh, Toby, I believe it's my turn to ask you, are you ready? All right, let's go. If you were to receive a lifetime sub supply of any one item, excluding money or necessities, uh, what would it be and how would it improve your life? <laughs> no money, no necessities. Um, I mean, it depends on how you define a necessity, right? Because your necessity might not be my necessity. But let's put a relevant spin to this. Um, how about a lifetime supply of socks? And I'm not talking about security operating centers, because that would that would be a necessity, I think. Uh, and and we excluded those. So the other socks is the actual socks you actually wear on your feet. So not just any socks, though. Those with kind of mismatched, outrageously loud patterns. It would mean really never having to worry about finding a pair that matches or deals with the mystery of the washing machine eating one uh, of my paired socks. Plus, my feet would, of course, be uh, a conversation starter at every single occasion where I'm not wearing shoes, obviously. Is that a taco riding a unicorn on your sock? Well, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. My life would be infinitely more joyful, one foot at a time. So I think that would be my answer. <laughs> That's it. That's a great answer. I still feel bummed. Two years ago, we were on a road trip in California, and I, I found this remote store and they sold these crazy socks. And one of those was uh, that literally said, this meeting could have been an email. And, <laughs> and I did not buy them. They were $5 or something. I figured, yeah, I'm never going to wear these. I could wear those. And, and whenever I'm in a meeting that I feel, yeah, this could have been an email, I could just sort of lift my leg and show my socks. And it would be fun, maybe. And hopefully the meeting would end. All I, right. either, either that or you get a call from HR. <laughs> yeah, could be that too. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. See you then.